you are looking at the finest specimen of exercise innovation in human history. Crafted from space-grade aluminium, packed with cutting-edge technology, it has everything you didn't even know you needed. Diamond Grip Surface for superior traction, real-time heart rate monitoring, voice-activated entertainment console, and our patent-pending Cloud9 suspension system that will make you feel like you're running on air. Plus, this versatile catch-all surface allows it to be transformed into open-concept storage. The sturdy armrails are perfect for a standard coat hanger, and there's enough surface space to air dry an average load of laundry, while doubling as a small child's jungle gym. With a variety of color options to match your home, it blends in so well, you'll forget it's even there. In fact, it's so spectacular, you won't even want to use it at all. Let's begin with a moment of mass confession. Show of hands if you currently own or have ever owned a piece of home exercise equipment that you hardly ever use. Show of hands. Yes, look at all of us slackers. There you go. We are in good company, right? And everybody who's not raising their hand, they're not raising their hand because, or they're not not raising their hand because they have it and use it. They just have more self-awareness than all of us and never bothered to buy it. In fact, did you know that you can get one of the best bargains? I mean, you can save hundreds and hundreds of dollars. In fact, I'm sure in some cases you could save over $1,000. One of the very best bargains you can find is on gently used home exercise equipment. When I was growing up and we sold stuff, we just said it was used. But when it comes to this stuff, it's almost always advertised as gently used, which seems appropriately because when you see it, you look at it and you go, did anybody use this at all, right? And the answer usually is, no, not really, not really. And what's interesting about the original purchasers of this stuff, and we've all been the original purchasers of this stuff, but what's interesting about the original purchasers of this stuff is that when we bought it, we were believers, right? We believed. We believed in the value of exercise. We believed in the value of our health. We believed that it's good to get our cardio in. The reason that it gets sold gently used is not because we didn't believe in it. The reason it gets sold gently used is because we didn't actually use it. And we know that this is true, that when it comes to exercise, people don't always act on what they believe. As you know, when it comes to our health, which you could think of in terms of both our exercise habits and our eating habits, when it comes to our health, believing alone makes absolutely no difference. What makes all the difference? Doing. Yeah, exactly. Doing makes all the difference. When it comes to our health, it's not enough to just believe. You have to also act on what you believe. In fact, I would argue that you could actually not believe in the value of exercise, but if you could somehow manage to force yourself to do it long enough, it would still be good for you. So let's just do this. Another moment of mass confession, show of hands. How many of you have ever gone and exercised with a bad attitude? Show of hands. Yes, right? Like you had a bad attitude driving to the gym. You worked out begrudgingly. You were like, I do not want to be here. And yet, even though you didn't really believe in it, in that moment, it was still good for you. And I've been there too. I'm guilty of this myself. In fact, I think I've experienced this like to the max, as much as you can experience this I have, because several years ago, my wife convinced me to, to do this run. And you need to know, I hate to run. I mean, I'm good for it like, you know, 
for like 10 feet or so. But much beyond that, and I just think I'd rather drive. And so several years ago, you know, it was what cars were invented for. Actually, did you know that that's why cars were invented? Did you know it's because Henry Ford hated to run? But he lived at a time when there was no cars, and he didn't have a bicycle. So he was like, I'm going to do something about this. And he invented the Model T so that he wouldn't have to run everywhere. That's not true. Um, <laughs> but it seems plausible, it's, right? It seems like a good motivation. So anyway, so several years ago, my wife convinced me to run a half marathon with her. Guys, do you know how far a half marathon is? 13 miles. Not yards. 13 miles. And so we signed up for this half marathon. I mean, only to impress someone you're attracted to will someone who hates to run agree to run 13 miles. But I agreed to it. And so we got on this training program, and for six months we started running, and we started off small, and we started to work our way up longer and longer runs over time, and we got to the week of the race, and the last run that we had to do in our training was 11 miles, and we did that, and we finished it, and then we had a day off before the race day when we would do the 13th. Well, on that day off, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, and we left. We moved down to the south so that we could help with the relief efforts, and we never even got to do the race. I ran for six months for nothing. It was so dumb. I will never do it again. It was so dumb. But even though I didn't believe in it, I was in the best shape of my life. Now, I didn't stay in the best shape of my life because I didn't believe in it. And without the belief, it's impossible to sustain that long term. And so we see when it comes to exercise that you have to have this combination of belief and actions to support the belief. This idea that, that it takes both the belief and actions together when it comes to our exercise also applies to our faith. Nobody articulates this principle or this truth more clearly than Jesus' brother James. Towards the end of the first century, James sat down to write a letter. It's kind of a short letter, but it's incredibly rich. And one of the things that he talks about in his letter is how our faith is a combination of believing and doing as well. Let's look at this together in James chapter 2. He begins the, this kind of this passage of his, of his letter, or this kind of section of his letter, by asking the question, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no deeds? This is our exercise question. He's saying, what good is it to believe in the value of exercise, but to not actually do anything? He's making the same parallel, he's making the same point as it relates to our faith. He asks the question, what good is it if you have faith, but no actions to back that up. Well, some of us might think, well, well, isn't it enough to believe? Like, doesn't that accomplish everything that Jesus invited me to do? Isn't, isn't it enough to believe the facts? Isn't it enough to have my theology straight? Isn't that okay? Well, James would respond with an illustration. He asked then, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food, right? Jesus calls us to to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry. So he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He's got a good point. If I'm walking down the street and somebody who is legitimately hungry asks me for some money to buy food or asks me for some food, and I say, hey, man, I wish you well, be well-fed, and I continue on my way, what good did that serve? Nothing. Thank you. Yeah, in the front row, we got, a, we got somebody engaged, right? 
Nothing. James would say that does no good. Nothing. That does zero. And then he concludes in the same way, in the same way that saying go and be well fed does nothing. He says in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, it is dead. James would argue faith without action is worthless. It is dead. What James is highlighting better probably than anyone else in Scripture is the reality and the truth that our faith is a combination of what we believe and how we live our lives. It is not enough to have one without the other. And for us church people, if we're going to err on one side of this equation, having faith or having actions, we will always err on the side of having the beliefs but not the actions to back it up. Think about it, it's just incredibly unlikely that anybody would have the actions without the belief. It would be incredibly rare to find somebody who lives their life day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, the way that Jesus calls us to live counterculturally. It would be incredibly rare to find somebody who does that consistently over a long period of time without having strong, deeply held beliefs that serve as the foundation and the motivation for that. But unfortunately, the opposite is all too common. The opposite of that, believing what Jesus said to be true, believing we should love other people as we love ourselves, believing that we should be generous, believing that we should, we should pray for other people, but not doing anything, anything about it is all too common. But faith, like our health, unless we do something about it, James would say, is dead. Now, this relates to several parts of our faith, different areas of our faith, but I want to camp out on one particular part of our faith that this is true in today, and that particular area is community. I want us to think about how this relates to our friendships and our relationships, because when it comes to community, you, it, it, you have to do more than just value community. You have to have more than just a belief in, in the value that it's good to have good relationships. It's not enough to simply believe. It's not enough to simply want good friendships. You have to actually do something about it, and that's where it gets a little bit harder for us. I think that it's easy to value community. I think that it is naturally ingrained in all of us to have a desire for deep, deep community. At Heartland, one of our core values, one of the things that we believe very deeply is the fact that we are designed to be in community. We believe that when God created each and every one of us, one of the things that he implanted deep into our souls is a desire for community. He placed within each and every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, a desire to have someone or a group of someones around us that truly know us that we can be real with, that we can be authentic with, that we can, not, we can be ourselves and not worry that they're going to turn away from us because they don't like what they find when they see the real us. All of us have the desire to have a couple people or a small group of people around us who, who are there for us when life hits a rough season, who we know that they're not going to leave us when things get difficult. In fact, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to come and they're going to show up more. All of us want that. And... I would argue all of us deep down want to be that for, for someone else or for another group of small people. We want to be needed in that way. We want to provide that for them. We want to be the one that they look to and that they lean on when they need it. We, we have been programmed to need community and to want to give community. But wanting it is not enough. Just like exercise, believing in the value of community does nothing to actually build that type of community. 
And so before we go any further, and before we see what, what, what God tells us through the writers of Scripture about this, let me just prod a little bit. Let me just ask you a couple questions. This is not a show of hands moment, but I want you to be honest with yourself before we get into the Scripture as it relates to this. That you can ask you is simply, are you satisfied with the level of community that you currently have? Are you satisfied with your deep friendships and, and the relationships you have? If you are completely satisfied and happy with your relationships, that is awesome. That's fantastic. Praise God. You should start a blog. You should do that because surveys show that Americans deeply wish they had more significant relationships. And so if, you've, if you're not satisfied with the level of community that you're currently experiencing, my next question would simply be, are you doing anything to develop a deeper level of community? Because again, it's not enough to just believe in the value of it. It's not enough to just simply want it. You have to take some tangible steps to see it become a reality. All right, now, as I said, don't answer those questions out loud, but hold your answers to those in the back of your mind. What I want us to do now is I want us to jump into a passage of, of Scripture in the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's actually not so much a book. It's more like a long, theologically dense uh, sermon. It's kind of what it is. Some of you think I give long, dense sermons, but you should read the book of Hebrews, okay? It makes me look like short and, and brief. All right, but so the book of Hebrews was written to to Jewish people, Jewish men and women, who had converted to Christianity, all right? And so as they started to become followers of Jesus, they were bringing with them into the Christian faith, they were bringing all of their Jewish roots. And so the passage that we're going to look at in a second can seem a little bit confusing at first. I'm going to do my best to break it down for you, but here's the deal. If I lose you in the beginning of this passage, just don't miss the overarching principle because you're, like, have questions about the details, Okay? Can you stay with me? Yes, okay, all right. Um, we're going to jump in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. And here's what I want you to look for before we even jump into it. Here's the overarching thing I want you to see. What I want you to see that the author of Hebrews does here is I want you to see how he ties together our belief, like our relationship with God, having our theology straight, and then our relationships with other people. He does a brilliant job of tying these two things together. So that's what I really want you to see. But we're going to get into it beginning in verse 19, where the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay, now again, some of you are looking at me like you already lost me. I know, I told you that, okay? But here's what he's saying. He, okay, the most holy place right, was the Holy of Holies. It was the center of the Temple Mount. For the nation of Israel, it was where they believed God's presence dwelled with them. And the only person who was allowed to enter into that space, into that room, was the high priest, and even the high priest would only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. But so the author of Hebrews is saying, now we have confidence. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about the masses. He's saying, now, because of the blood of Jesus, all of us have permission and confidence to enter into the presence of God. He continues, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, right? Not an old and dead way. That was the sacrificial system. That was, that was um, the, the animal sacrifices that they made. But now Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. So it's a new and living way. 
opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Okay, now again, the Holy of Holies, all of his original readers would have understood this because he was writing to a Jewish Christian audience. But the Holy of Holies had a giant curtain that sectioned it off from the rest of the temple, and that's where the high priest would enter into. And now he's saying, because of the blood of Jesus, because of the body of Jesus, which had, been, had gone through the death, burial, and resurrection, he's saying now all of us have confidence to enter into the presence of God whenever we want. We don't need the high priest any longer. He continues. He says, and since we have a great high priest, right, over the house of God, then let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. This is all very belief-heavy language. This is all very theological uh, language. This is him talking very vertically here. And then he concludes this part by saying, so let us hold unswervingly, right, great word, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, everything up until this point has been very theological. He is trying to help them understand what they believe and why they believe it. He wants them to get their beliefs straight. But now he's going to transition. Now he's going to pivot. Now he's going to turn from the vertical to the horizontal, and he writes that because of this, because Jesus has done all of this, because we now have access to enter into the presence of God on our own, we don't need a high priest, Jesus has done it for us, we don't enter in through a curtain, we enter in through the body of Christ, now he says, let us consider let us consider. What does that mean? He says, we should be, because of that, we should be giving careful examination to. He says, in light of the fact that you now have access to the presence of God, you've got to spend some time thinking about how we may spur one another on. He goes from the vertical to the horizontal. He says, in light of this incredible truth, in light of, of, of what we now understand, now that we have access to God ourselves, we have to go horizontal. We have to get relational. He says, he says that we should spur one another on. We should consider how to spur one another on. The word spur could be translated like how we stir one another up. It could be translated, we should consider how we motivate one another. It should be how we inspire one another. What he's saying is that for followers of Jesus, we should have some relationships with other followers of Jesus, right? Notice he's not talking about our relationships with people outside the body of Christ here. He's talking about relationships within the body of Christ with other believers. He's saying that you should have some relationships that are so close, you are actually able to spur one another on in their lives, that you should be able to nudge them forward. What he's saying is that in your life, you should have some relationships with some other people to where when you see your friends start to drift away, you actually have a close enough relationship, like you have enough relational tokens built up, you have enough, you have enough uh, trust developed between you that when you see your friends start to drift, you can draw them back and they will respond positively to it because of the relationship you have. He's saying in your relationships, you should have some friendships that are so close that when you see that other couple start to struggle, you've already developed such a good relationship with them that you can speak into their relationship and you can help draw them back. You can help spur them on. He's saying, I want you to have some relationships that are so good that when your friend's son starts to drift and dad doesn't have the words, 
and mom doesn't know what to say. You have access to that son because of the relationship you've developed. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, what you believe is really important, but, but, but believing alone is not enough. You have to take this to the relational level as well. And so he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards what? Love and good deeds. This is belief in action. This is the author of Hebrews' way of saying, you have got to get on the treadmill. It is not enough to have one in the basement. Right? This is his way of saying, you have got to get on the elliptical. It does you no good serving you as a coat rack. Right? He says, in the same way that it does no good to believe in the value of exercise, he's saying, listen, it's great that we can say, I can pray to God, and I have access to God, and I could be in the presence of God if I wanted to. He's like, that's great, but what are you actually doing? Because the odds are that you're probably not doing very much if you don't have someone or a group of someones in your life that are, that are spurring you on towards love and good deeds. He's saying, you need a group of people who will help you actually forgive instead of just thinking to yourself, man, at some point I should probably forgive them. So that you're actually apologizing to her when you're not the most pleasant instead of just thinking, well, that wasn't my best moment and moving on. You need some people who who are there to help you actually put other people first rather than just once in a while feeling like maybe I shouldn't be so selfish. And then... After all of this incredibly rich stuff, then the author of Hebrews gets way up in your business and way up in my business, and he says something next that will blow you away. It was, this boggles my mind that this was written 2,000 years ago, but apparently the, the challenges facing the early church are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago, because then after all of this, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently, even 2,000 years ago, it was easy for the Christians to slip into the habit of not regularly meeting together with each other. Now, when I grew up, pastors, and at least a couple pastors that I you know, grew up listening to, pastors that I grew up with loved Hebrews 10.25 because they loved to use it as a foundation for their argument that you needed to be in church every Sunday, not just once in a while. In fact, when I learned Hebrews 10.25 as a little kid, I learned it in a different translation that said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Even now, I love that language, forsake not. That's just... I don't know, it's like poetic and beautiful and also powerful. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But I actually think in light of what came before this and what comes after this, I don't think that's the full extent of what the writer of Hebrews was talking about here. Now, I think that's part of it, yes. I mean, do I think that God would like for us to show up to worship as much as possible, ideally even every single Sunday? Yeah, of course I do. I believe in the power of these gatherings so much, I have literally given my entire life to leading them. I just believe with everything in me that something special happens when we gather together as the body of Christ. I think that something happens when we stand together in community to worship our great God. I think most of us would not have the opportunity to worship God verbally, out loud, through music like that with other people, if not for these services. 
I think that something really powerful happens when we talk about being the body of uh, the hands and feet of Jesus to the community around us. I think something really powerful happens when we give our finances and when we pool our financial resources together to be a part of something and to fund something bigger than ourselves. It's part of our legacy and it breaks the bonds of materialism on our heart. I think it's really valuable to consistently put ourselves in an environment where we hear someone else unpack a passage of scripture because I help. I think that helps sustain us in our desire and, and in our calling to live a countercultural life. Do I believe it's valuable to be here? Yes. But that's not the full extent of what the writer of Hebrews was talking about here. What he is getting after is putting ourselves in an environment where we are able to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. When you're sitting in rows, you're not really doing much spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. But that's what he's talking about here. So if that's what he's talking about, if the calling is to put ourselves in an environment where we can love and spur one another on towards love and good deeds, then in that case, meeting together in a smaller group is important. That's the environment in which, and that's the reason that we would say around here that in some ways, circles are better than rows. Because if the goal is to provide an environment, and if the goal is to put ourselves in an environment where we are loving and spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, then in that context, rows aren't really all that helpful. But circles are. And so he finishes this passage by saying, all the more. He encourages us to do this all the more. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And so he wanted his readers to understand and he wanted them to make it a high priority to consistently place themselves in an environment where they could spur one another on. And so you have to understand that the author of Hebrews here is not simply talking about having some good friends. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about just having a group of guys that you like to watch the game with. He's not talking about, uh, about a group of couple friends that you like to go camping with. It's deeper than that. That's great. I hope that you have that. I hope you try to develop that. But what he's talking about here is richer. It's deeper than that. He's talking about having some close friends that you have intentional conversations with about your life and faith and how your faith impacts your life. He's calling us to have relationships that are deeper. They're at a deeper level. They're at a relationship level where we gather together intentionally to pray for one another. How often do you gather together with a group of people with the focus being to pray for them? He's, he's saying, I want you to have a level of community where you get together intentionally to dig into Scripture together. How often do you do that outside the context of a small group? If you're not in a small group, my guess is probably very, very little. And I understand that there are people who will say, listen, man, I'm good like, I, I don't need that. I'm kind of like the Lone Ranger Christian, you know? I'm the Lone Ranger follower. I'm the Lone Ranger disciple of Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need other people. I'm good on my own. And I think to those people, the, the writer of Hebrews, I think Jesus himself would say, you don't understand the Christian faith. Like, this is a one another deal. And you never mature past the point of needing other people and you never mature past the point of other people not needing you. To say it succinctly, there is a divinely designed correlation between community and faithfulness to God. You have been designed 
to live your life in community. And God, through the author of Hebrews, calls you to take tangible, concrete steps towards developing that. And so here's my question as we begin another fall ministry launch. Here's my question as we get back into the rhythm of the fall, as our kids go back to school, as our our schedules become a little more consistent. Maybe you're new to the community, right? Maybe you're just newer to the church, but I want to ask the question, is there anyone outside of your family spurring you on to live out your faith? Is there anyone outside of your family spurring you on to live out your faith? Do you have anyone doing that? Are you doing that for anyone else? Or have you given up meeting together? Maybe you were in a small group at one time, but you're not now because you've given up meeting together. Or maybe have you ever met together? Have you ever put yourself in the context of a small group that is designed to help you spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Or has your entire church experience after you graduated from Sunday school, if you grew up going to church and you had Sunday school, has your entire church experience been sitting in a row listening to a talking head Right, singing a few songs, one of which you really liked, but a couple of them you were daydreaming anyway. Then somebody asked for money and you went home. Like, has that been the full extent of your Christian experience, right? Being in a small group is sort of where the rubber meets the road. It is so incredibly easy to walk out of here and forget everything I said by lunchtime. I understand that. I am very aware of that. Think about how that makes me feel about my own self-worth, but I am perfectly aware (laughs) That by the time you eat lunch, most of you have forgotten about what I said. I get it. But when you're in a small group, and when you set aside time to gather together in someone's home during the week to talk about these passages of Scripture that I'm teeing up, and when you pray for each other, and when you dig into Scripture together, that's when your life actually comes alive. That's when your faith actually has the possibility of impacting your life for the better. And I know that you don't have time for this. None of us do. I know that those of you who exercise recognize that you probably don't have time to exercise, but you sacrifice some other things that you could exercise. But you know that that has paid off for you. And when you look in the mirror, or when you go get checked up with the doctor, or even just when you hit that like 3 o'clock lull in the afternoon and you feel good, you know that making it a priority to exercise is worth it. And it's the same thing with being in a group. Does it take some work? Does it take some intentionality to develop the type of relationships that the author of Hebrews was talking about? Yeah, of course it does. But it's so incredibly worth it. And I'll just tell you that I am seeing the value of this in my own life more now than I ever have at any other point in my life. Over the last several years, my inner circle, we have been developing close relationships where we could spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And we didn't you know, like have this huge hole that we were trying to fill. Like we just were friends and we wanted to be intentional and we wanted to be obedient to what God calls us to. And so we did it. We put in the time and the effort and we were in small groups together year after year after year. And I, but our lives were, were going along pretty well. But now we're in, this, we're in this situation where none of us could have ever imagined we would be in. And we are so incredibly grateful that we have already done the hard work to develop the type of relationships that we've developed. And now we are leaning on each other in an incredibly significant way. But I'm seeing the value of community. And I'm seeing the value of working for these relationships. And if I can 
be perfectly blunt with you for a second, if you'll allow me to, like maybe sound a little bit arrogant, I don't mean it this way, but I have great friendships. And if there's anybody in the room who could make the argument they don't need to be in a small group, I think it's probably me. I've done this my whole life. I do this seven days a week. If there's anybody who could argue I don't need to be in that group, I would argue it's me. And yet, I am in a church small group, and I will always be in a church small group because I understand the value of meeting together with other people to help spur one another on. I recognize that I will never mature past the point of needing other people to speak into my life, and I understand I will never mature past the point of needing to be there to speak into the lives of other people. And so I will always value small groups. And that's why every fall we come back to these. Every fall we launch a new round, a new season of of small groups here at Heartland. And the reason we do that is because we are not content to have you just believe the right things. I want with everything in me to help spur you on to actually live out what you believe. And I can think of no better context to do that than through a church small group. And so if you're not in one heading into this fall, I want to challenge you before you leave today to do something about that. If you know deep down that you could use some deeper relationships, you can do something about that today. I want to challenge you to do it before you leave. And if you feel like you've kind of got your faith like locked down pretty well, like you've got the vertical thing figured out, you understand the theology, man, I want to challenge you to sign up to lead or host a small group. With our growing church, we, constantly, we are constantly in a state of needing more small groups to launch so we have room for people who want to get into them. So if you're, if you're somebody who you're like, you know what, I could open my home, I want to challenge you to do that. If you're somebody who goes, you know what, I think I could lead the conversation. I don't have to have all the answers, but I could lead the conversation. I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge you to try it just for one season. You don't have to commit to the next five years. Just commit to the next season of small groups. And... You can even start different groups, different styles of groups. We don't dictate what you talk about. We provide questions so that you can talk about what you're learning on the weekend and what I'm teeing up or what the teachers are teeing up. But if you've got this great study you want to do, we will say, great, go for it. You can do whatever you want. In fact, I want to show you a video as we close today of this kind of a unique style of growth group. And uh, so take a look at this as you're thinking about starting your own, and then I'll wrap it up. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey, dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey, man. How's it going? That's good. Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? 
You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? <laughs> oh. I love that. That's so good. All right, here's the deal. You can get signed up for a small group uh, by going to the Heartland Church of Sun Prairie app. You can get signed up for a small group by going to our website, weareheartland.us, or you can head to the connection point tables out in the comments area today. But thanks for being here. Let me pray, and we will see you next week. God, thank you for this incredibly applicable passage in Hebrews. Lord, thank you for the, the, the invitation to do life in community. But Lord, we confess that that is difficult and tricky sometimes. And so Lord, would you, would you smooth the road before us? Would you give us the courage and the, make, a, make the decision-ness, that's not even a word, but I'm going to pray it, to, to get signed up, Lord, so that we can experience this in our own lives and so that we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to be here in your presence together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody who agreed said, amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll see you next week.